Well, it's good to be um, preaching again this week. Uh, I took last week off, and Pastor Dave taught on the, the tabernacle, and um, we are going to continue in our series this morning in Exodus. But before you open up your Bibles and turn to Exodus, just hang on a second, because we're not quite going to open them up and turn to Exodus yet, because um, we're going to talk about Exodus, but we aren't specifically going to be in Exodus this morning, and you'll see what I mean. But just to give you a real quick review here, so we've been talking about a holy God and a holy people. We've been talking about uh, the book of Exodus and what we see this holy God looks like and what it means for these people, the Israelites, to be a holy people. And one of the things that we continue to come back to again and again and again is the idea that God has rescued and redeemed and saved these people. He has allowed them to experience freedom from oppression. Freedom is something that we value a lot and that we have a lot of. In fact, we know very well what it feels like to be free, but we have a tendency to want what the Israelites wanted, which more than freedom, autonomy. And autonomy is I'm not just free, but I am in charge of what I get to do now that I'm free. I get to determine the way things ought to be. I get to run my own life. The Israelites wanted this. They continued to go back to just wanting to be themselves and forgetting that God was a part of bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them into, uh, out of slavery into freedom. And he would continue to remind them again and again, I have saved you and redeemed you and rescued you so that you can worship me, right? So that you can be my people, so that you can be a holy people. Never, I think it'd be hard to argue that, that there has been a time when people have experienced a greater degree of freedom than we experience, even living in our country right now. We are really free. We have a lot of autonomy, and that is very important to us. In fact, autonomy is so important to us that it's affected us in some pretty profound ways. And yet with all of this freedom that we have, there's something that we don't have very much of, which is happiness. We're a very free people, but it doesn't seem that tremendous freedom has led to tremendous happiness. And we have to ask the question of why. What happens when a group of people are free and autonomous and they get to be in charge of everything, especially themselves? And, uh, and what do we do with that? One, uh, one author wrote it very well this way. He said, through unfettered autonomy, we make ourselves gods who are accountable to no one. We then use our divinity to declare we are less than human. So what man has done is man has said, I'm God. And then in doing that, we get to a point that naturally always happens once you make yourself God, which is you actually end up becoming less and less than you were ever in the beginning. To where now, rather than gods, we're animals. Uh, another author that I was reading this week, he wrote a book on gratitude as he was dying, um, and he is an atheist, or he was an atheist, and he was a neuroscientist of some kind, and this was the statement um, out of his book sort of that sums up his perspective as a non-believer on what it is to, uh, to be who we are. He says, my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much, and I have given something in return. Above all, I have been a sentient being a thinking animal on this beautiful planet, and that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. So even in this man's gratefulness for the life that he has and the life that he has lived, his worldview only enables him to see himself as so big, right? I am merely a sentient being, 
And I'm grateful that I've been at least conscious, that I've experienced self-consciousness and awareness. I am a thinking animal. This is how most of us, many, many people, see ourselves, see themselves. We start out with autonomy, saying, I want to be God of my own life. But where that eventually leads us is to being less than we ever started out as. This is what the Israelites have a tendency to want to do. This is something that we see again and again and again. What we see through Exodus is that true freedom is the freedom to be a holy people. It is a freedom that comes along with it. God's saying, here's how you worship me and therefore be a people with meaning and significance. Uh, my creation, image bearers of me. And so we've been looking at the Ten, we looked at the Ten Commandments, which, you know, there's a, there's, it's not that hard to see the connection between the Ten Commandments, God's law, and the way that we should live, right? We, we all have held ourselves to those in one way or another. Uh, but one of the things that we talked about was the importance of recognizing the Ten Commandments should be held by a specific group of people. They're not intended to be held by everyone. God's law is not meant for everyone, but for God's people. And then it's meant to be held for God's people for the right reasons, right? You don't, you don't do good things so that you can uh, be loved by God. You do good things because you are loved loved by God. And it's out of gratitude that leads us to want to obey him and live that way. Then last week, Pastor Dave walked us through the tabernacle, the temple. He literally walked us through it. He walked around the room. And we begin to get to this point when you get to the tabernacle. And now, especially when you get to where we're at this week, you have chapter after chapter after chapter of specific details about how things are built and constructed. In these chapters that we'll be looking at, that we'll be covering this morning, uh, Chapter 28 is all about what a priest will wear. Uh, and I'll give you, um, well, I showed a picture in the first service of what the priest would wear, but, um, and I know I didn't obviously dress up as a priest this week, which a lot of people are disappointed about because we have the costume. But I did get someone to dress up. Can you come up? Do we, can we have a priest? There we go. All right. This is our high priest, uh, Priest Josh. And uh, it's very nice. This is good. Um, I'm glad you did the wig. I'm glad too. Yeah, yeah. You can't really be another person without the wig. Um, so uh, this is what the high priest wore. This is exactly what they wore, how it looked, perfectly replicated that we found in our costume room um, with an Apple Watch. Yeah, I kept it on for all my pictures. I think that's good. So, and the Puma socks. Yeah. So, um, so this is it. Um, I can tell you what all this stuff is but I don't remember, and I spent all week reading it, okay? So uh, it's hard for me to remember what all the different parts are, but that, needless to say, everything that he has on, he was told to have on by Scripture. Scripture said you have to have all these different things. I know these are the 12 tribes, right? We know that. That's not that hard to forget, right? Um, and there's significance and meaning behind every single thing that the priest was wearing, and that's what we see in chapter 28 of Exodus. We see this. Um, there's actually a challenge right now. Um, to, uh, to put on church costumes and take pictures and put them online. So if someone gets a picture of Josh, he can, he can do this. You dropped a bell? Now you'll die. All right, I guess I'll take the picture. This is highly, highly unusual. There we go. All right. There you go. Thanks, Josh. Everybody say thank you, Josh. Yeah. Before that, he had on the real priestly garments of a youth pastor. He had like cargo shorts and kind of like a nicer polo shirt, you know, because it's Sunday. And so that's the new priestly garments investments. Um, I got a bell here if anyone wants it. Um, the, uh, so chapter 28 is all about what the priest will wear. 
Chapter 29 is all about how the priest is consecrated. Really, 29 and 30 are all about how the priest is consecrated and then the sacrifices that they make so the people themselves can be consecrated free from sin. There's tremendous detail. And we find ourselves, as we get to the tabernacles, we get to this going, why am I reading this and what does it mean for me? I know that that's how I felt all week as I've been reading through it, thinking, how often do you wake up in the morning, open up an old book that's thousands of years old, and read about a culture that's thousands of years old, and the traditions they had thousands of years ago that their priests wore to lead their people in worship and the kinds of sacrifices they did, and then write a little journal entry on something like that. Not very often that you would do something like that. Why do we have this? Why do we read this? What does this mean? And, and when you go and approach Scripture, one of the most valuable tools for teachers and preachers is the thing called a commentary. And a commentary is basically another word for cheating because it's other people's done the work, right? They're smart people. They read all this stuff. They wrote something that explains the Bible to you. There is no better commentary than Scripture itself. There are parts where the Bible talks about the Bible, and it explains it really, really well. And so this morning, rather than be in these whole three chapters in Exodus, we're going to jump ahead and we're going to go to Hebrews. And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 9. And we're going to look at how Scripture really interprets what happens in Exodus uh, because it's a really good overview of it. So we're going to go to Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. And, and we will read. I'm not going to put it up on the screen because there's a little too much, but we're going to read through this. And this is going to basically summarize for us all the stuff that was in these multiple chapters in the Old Testament and Exodus. So, so pay very close attention. If you don't, I'll go back to Exodus and I'll just read straight three chapters for you guys. Uh, so Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 says this. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared for the first, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, hooking the manna, holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory and overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6 says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, and only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed on the time until the time of reformation. So this is a really good summary of these chapters in Exodus that we're talking about this morning. There's a lot of detail in what's given in Exodus, and it's very old. And like I said, it's a little hard for us to understand how that connects to where we're at now. The author of Hebrews has done that for us. They have connected that for us. In verse 9, it says this. According to this arrangement, I'll put it up here. Oh, there's the stuff. The priest is necessary. 
We'll go back to that. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You see, sacrifice is needed because there's iniquity, because there's sin. And this isn't just specific to the Israelites. Since the beginning of people, there has always been the idea of God's And those gods required some kind of sacrifice. Whether that god was a deity, like in the past, or that god was something physical, or that god was a person, or an idea, or another thing, or a group of people, or a nation, or a country. Gods have been made into many different things. Many different things have been made into gods. But they always require sacrifice. In fact, if you look at ancient cultures, they often required blood sacrifice, even at times sacrifice of people. Before the Israelites, you had various people sacrificing even children and babies to these gods for the sake of appeasing them. Why? Because they believed that if they could make the gods happy, then they would be okay. You saw in the time of the Israelites, God saying, because of sin and there is death, They had to sacrifice bulls and and, and goats and all kinds of different animals like that. That blood was meant to make up for the blood of their sin. We even see it now. We actually see blood and death come from sacrifice to gods. In the world of autonomy, in the world that says the single most important thing to us is that we be free to do what we want and be who we want we see what happens when a society even says that we can kill human beings that we don't think are valuable enough for life or that we don't think are worthy enough. Uh, Secular philosophers have long argued that people should be killed who are not valued or who do not have the the capacity to understand who they are fully, fully conscious, fully aware, fully capable, that the right thing to do in an autonomous society is to take their lives. The idea of sacrifice and lives being taken is not uh, specifically limited to the Bible and to the Israelites and to the Old Testament. Because of this, there is a sense of incompleteness. Again, in verse 9, it says that these gifts and sacrifices are offered, but they can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. These gifts and sacrifices are offered. They have to be offered. The point that I made back here was this. The priest is, above all else, necessary. Okay? So we see that. You can have a tabernacle, a temple. You can have a God up on the mountain calling out to his people, giving them things. But if you don't have a priest, if you don't have a mediator, somebody coming in between a messed up people and a holy God to help make them into a holy people, if you don't have that, you can't have people interact with God. You can't. The priest, the outfit, the specifics, the detail, all of it is necessary. It's needed. If all the priests disappeared from Israel, they would not be able to interact with their God. He's just too holy, and they wouldn't have a way to do it. But all that they do is, it seems, incomplete, because it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What this means to perfect the conscience is this. It means that no matter how much was sacrificed, so no matter how much they gave, they never got to feel like their conscience was really clear. They never got to feel like they were actually good with God. So many of us know exactly what that feels like. Not even necessarily with God. 
You know this feeling probably if you have parents, and you know this feeling probably if you have kids. Because so many have grown up and at one point or another in your life have been like, I know that my parents don't approve of me. I know that my parents aren't happy with me. I know that maybe they're disappointed in me. And how awful that can feel. We deal with that one of two ways. We, we feel guilty because we think they're right. We think, I haven't done good things. I haven't made good decisions. I haven't made good choices. I haven't become the kind of person I could become. Or we resent it. We think, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm great. It's just really, really sad to know that they don't see that. And so we resent them for it. If you're a parent and you're raising children or you have children, you know that so much of parenting is redrawing the lines of what you expect for your kids, not because you're compromising, but because you're trying to understand the difference between doing right and wrong and them being who they are, right? And recognizing this is who they are. That's such a hard aspect of parenting, of growing up. But at times, as a parent, we have to repent and we have to say, when I really am honest, I haven't been happy with them. I haven't been pleased with them. They haven't been good enough for me, and I've allowed them to feel that way. And then we repent, and we, we try to take the next steps forward doing better in that way, right? This feeling of knowing that you're not really good with your father, that you're not really good with your mother, I think is one of the worst feelings that a person can have. It's so difficult to have that feeling with God, to look at God and go, no matter what I do, no matter how many rules I try to follow, no matter how many sacrifices are made, at the end of the day, I just don't feel really like he's okay with me, like I have freedom. Like when God looks at me, he says, I like what I see. Many of us, if we stop and ask ourselves that question, do I think that way about God? Do I think that God looks at me and he likes what he sees? Many of us can't say yes to that because we just don't know what it feels like to think that God's okay with us. These sacrifices could not, in the end, give the people the ability to have a clear conscience. They were just going to make up for the sin of today, and then they were going to make up for the sin of tomorrow. They were going to keep making up for sins when they came up, but they were never going to be better people, different people, healed people as a result of it. And it makes reference here to these rules really be things, washings and regulations and, and food and drink and all kinds of rules, that these things uh, will be imposed until the time of Reformation. No, it's not talking about the Reformation Reformation. If you translate this word out literally, Reformation means uh, establishing a new order. It's a process of establishing a new order. So there's eventually going to be a new order, and it's going to come, and it's going to be better than this. It's going to be more thorough than this. It's called a new covenant. And when that thing comes, the old covenant will pass away. It'll be replaced by the new covenant. So it's always intended to be a temporary thing for the people. Now, the old was physical and the new is spiritual. The sacrifices were physical. The blood was physical. The old was uh, about physical rules, whereas the new is about uh, what is at the root of obedience to rules is the spirit in our heart and God writing them on our heart and in our minds. And so there is this idea in Scripture that we read about, and it is a profoundly important one, and it is here in Hebrews. I had a bad slide, and I didn't change it. So I think it's Hebrews 10, 11 through 17, not 8 through 17, says this. And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are to be sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put the, my law on their hearts, write them on my minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is a new covenant. And this new covenant is characterized by a few different things, but one of them is the priest is better. The priests that we read about in these three chapters in Exodus, they've been replaced by Jesus, the ultimate priest, the better priest, who can offer more and do more. Why is he the better priest above all else? Because of this. Because of the work that he does, your conscience actually can be clear. You actually can know in the end that I'm good with God and God is good with me. The most important thing that could ever happen to any of us Jesus is at the center of this whole thing. Jesus is everything. It all will come back just like the priest was essential and was at the center of the people being okay with God. Jesus is at the center. And all of the other things that when we're honest, we want to be at the center. We want this to be about. It's about Jesus. And we have to keep going back to that. Jesus is everything. He isn't just the one that saves us. He's the one that actually shows us what it's like to live as a holy person. And the author I quoted earlier, he said it so well. He says, in describing the way that Jesus was in the Bible, he says, kids rushed to play with him in the sunlit day and religious scholars secretly met with him in the moonlit night. Women found wholeness in him and in him thieves found forgiveness. Sinners were convicted by his words, but also by his actions. Jesus is the convergence of everything we wish was true about our worldview and ourselves. We look at Jesus and we say, that's what it looks like to really believe. That's what it looks like to be changed by your belief in such a way that you live fundamentally differently. There isn't just one thing about Jesus that's really great. There isn't just one aspect about him that we get to pick out that we like. He always followed the rules. He was really nice. He seemed to really be really good with people. He healed the sick. He could do miraculous things. He was really good at quiet times. There wasn't just one thing about Jesus that was good. Jesus really is what it would be like if everything we wish was true about our worldview and ourselves, if these things converged and they were actually really lived out. Jesus is everything, and everything hinges on who he is in the new covenant. We so much want that not to be true much of the time. When we're honest, we want it to be about other things. We want to be able to say that what saves us is us. Do you know why? Because we want to be heroes. We want to be the one that saves. We want to be the hero in our life and in our story. So often, people read through the Old Testament, and they go, oh, it's so great. It's got all these amazing examples of great people like Moses, who I should strive to live like, and great people like David, who was like the purest and the best. Yeah, David never did anything wrong, right? And people like Abraham and these giants of the faith, and oh, they're such good examples, and we should talk about them and want to be like them, and that's what it's about. The Old Testament isn't about those people. 
Those people are minor characters. There's a main character, and it's God who is the hero. There isn't a single part of it that you pull out and read that you don't ask the question, what does this say about who God is? Because he's the main character. We look at the New Testament, and it doesn't change. It's still God, but it's in Jesus. Everything we say points to Jesus again and again and again. But we want it to point to us. We want it to be about us. We want it to be about the way we live so that we can be good enough, and then it can be about us. We want it to be about our church. We want it to be about our families. We want it to be about our reputations. We want it to be about our actions. We want it to be about our diligence and our endurance and our willingness to make the hard choices so that we can be better. But it's not about those things. It's about Jesus. It's all about him because he's the new priest, because he's the sacrifice, because he's all of it. So here's the best part. Here's a therefore, and it's a really good one. Here is what it's like in the new covenant. If we have a new covenant, if we're not like the old one, then what does that actually mean? And there are some very practical things that it means. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to have to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what life in the new covenant looks like. Because of Jesus, there are things that we can and must now do. The first one it says is we have confidence to enter the holy places. That we can actually now be in God's presence with a clear conscience because we've been cleansed and we can actually approach the unapproachable. Nowhere is this idea of unapproachable more evident to me than I, I, this last week I was working in my yard and I know when I'm done working in a spot in my yard because yellow jackets come out and they attack me and then I'm done. I'm not going back to that spot in my yard anymore. I was working in one spot. I don't think it's scientifically possible that the previous owners of my house planted these yellow jacket nets because they don't last that long. But I want to think that that's what it is because there's just a lot of them and they're in some very precarious places. <laughs> too bad they're too bad they're in the room. I was working over by one area of my yard and I'm digging and all of a sudden they come out. And I've gotten pretty good with my instincts and my, my reaction time and I run. I mean, the moment one flies by my head, I run and I fall over stuff and I trip over stuff. I have all these bruises on my legs and I'm like, what are these from, you know? And, uh, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't even realize I was getting them because I was running from yellow jackets because I'm terrified of yellow jackets because they're awful. And then I come back slowly and I look and there they are, just a cloud of them. And they're so angry. They're so angry. And they're angry at me. They're angry at life. They're angry that someone messed up their house. I get it, but I'm still going to kill them all at night when they go to sleep because that's the most satisfying thing ever. They go to sleep at night and they get it. Do you know that Oregon City is out of wasp spray right now? Yes. Right? I can't find it anywhere. It's gone. They, like, you can't get traps or spray. I was driving through Corvallis yesterday and I was like, I got to stop and get yellow jacket spray. And I got theirs. 
So I've got like a truckload. I got a truckload of Yellow Jackets for I'll, I'll sell it to you for 50 bucks a bottle. I can. You'll, you'll, you'll pay it, believe me. I come back and I look at this thing and, and there is no way I'm going there. I can't think of anything that keeps me away from an area more than a bunch of angry Yellow Jackets that are stuck with one area. So I will, I will know exactly how close I can get and I will not go any closer. Why? Because if I go closer, these guys will annihilate me. They will ruin me. And so I don't. I stay back. And we read through Exodus. We read, oh, and then I go and I work in another part of my yard. Yellow jackets. I'm done. I'm done working in my yard. God doesn't want me out here anymore. I'm just going to go inside and watch TV. And that's what I did. So that's not that bad, but still. We read in the Old Testament, we read about the idea, right, that there's this mountain that God's on and you can't get too close or you'll die. There's a tabernacle and you can't go too far into it or you'll die. It is very clear he is not approachable because of the sin that you have and how holy he is. And it's a really big deal that we can now approach God with confidence, that we don't have to stay away anymore and be cautious, that we can do that. We have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, this took me years to learn, as a Christian even. Years after I became a Christian, I remember I was in seminary and I was on a, a retreat. I had to go on this retreat for one of my classes. And I'm, it's like a day of just, you know, reading the Bible and praying and all that stuff. And I'm, and I'm doing the thing that I always do. I'm writing down in like a journal that I have everything that I've done wrong. Because I got to get it all out, right? I got to get it all out there. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for this. I do this. I keep doing this. I'm like this. I keep doing this. Because if I can get it all out there, you know, then I can talk to God, right? Then I can approach God. Then God will want to hear with me. Then he'll want to hear me. Then he'll want to talk to me. Then he'll put up with me. And I'm halfway through doing this. And God just says to me, he says, stop. Just stop. That's all he says. Stop. Stop. And that was the point at which it occurred to me that my approach to God had always been with such caution and with such fear, thinking I have to be, the only way that I can really talk to God is if I'm like the new Ed, okay? This is it. God, I promise, I'm going to be the new Ed. I'm going to be the new and improved Ed. And so now, now will you take me seriously? I promise you I'm going to take you seriously and I'm going to take it all seriously. And he says, we don't have to approach him that way anymore. Because when God looks at me, he doesn't see the new Ed or the old Ed. He sees Jesus, his son, who he loves, with who he's well pleased. And if you repent of your sins and you're a believer and you're a follower of Jesus, then that's what he sees too. And I'm not saying it's, we shouldn't repent. We shouldn't say, God, I'm sorry for doing things. I've blown it and I repent. I want to turn away from sin and turn back to you. But our, our approach to God should not be characterized by guilt and shame and fear and caution thinking that if we get close to him, that we're going to get stung. And that's how most people associate getting close to God. And it's why a lot of people stay away from God, because they think that he can't be approached in that way. We can approach with confidence. We can have a full assurance of faith. Draw near, he says, with a full assurance of faith. Full assurance means completely certain of the truth of something. We can be absolutely, totally convinced of this faith that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. And when you're totally convinced of something and you live that way, it's fundamentally different than living another way. When I was a kid, I was constantly walking into sliding glass doors, constantly. I walked into a lot of screen doors too, which are not nearly as bad because they fall down, and then you land on a screen door, and it's not that bad. It's like a little net. 
then the Yellow Jackets get inside. Gosh, that's going to happen. I'm going to have a dream about that now. Oh, man. Back to the Yellow Jackets. I got away from that. I don't want to think about that. So many times did I walk into sliding glass doors that I still, as an adult, I have not done it for years, I promise. I've not walked into a sliding glass door in years. I still, when I walk through a sliding glass door opening, I do this. I put my hand out. Every time I walk through, I do this. I'm so afraid of hitting a sliding glass door that I just walk through like that. There will be a day, I hope, when I have enough of a full assurance that I'm not actually going to keep running into sliding glass doors, that my body will actually know that and my reactions will change and I will stop doing that. But until that point comes, until I have a full assurance of that thing, I'm going to constantly be a little worried about it, a little bit afraid, a little careful. And when you're careful and you're worried and you're a little bit afraid, then you live differently. Then you act differently. Then you behave differently. You say, yeah, this thing's true, but just in case it isn't. Here's what I'll do. Here's how I'll live. Here's the decisions that I'll make. Here's the safety net that I'll have. We are to hold fast to a confession of hope we read about in Hebrews here. We can be a people, individuals, who hope. We have hope in something that is not even yet fully here. We have a fundamental choice to make. The choice is this. Am I going to live for right now or am I going to live for something eternal. That's the question of the day for any person who encounters Jesus and is trying to decide what they're going to do with what they've seen in Jesus with this new covenant. Christians are called to be people who are characterized by hope in the future, hope in the eternal, hope in this divine inheritance that we have been guaranteed and promised. But most Christians are not characterized by hope in the future. Most Christians are characterized by love of life now. In fact, what draws a lot of people to faith when they're honest is it makes my life better now. I want a good life now. I want things to be good now. Having a confession, it says, hold fast to the confession of our hope. It isn't like confessing to a crime. It's swearing your allegiance to something. Swearing your allegiance to something. Like you're being persecuted or tortured and someone says, who is your master? And you say, my master is this person. I belong to them. Swearing our allegiance to what? To hope. That's such an interesting way to word that, that we are owned by the hope that we have, that we are characterized by the hope that we have, that if there's a name on us other than Jesus, it would be hope, that the response to following Jesus is hope, hope in something that is to come. And the reason that hope matters so much is because we live in a world that says it's not about what's coming, it's about what's now. It's about what's here. We get one life And we absolutely have to make the most of it. Do you know the time that most people actually start hoping for the life to come or for eternity is when they're done with this world, when they're like, I'm done with it. I have no hope in this anymore. So most people will live a lot of their life hoping in this world. We'll we'll use all the spiritual language. We'll talk about things like that. But most people will live their life with their hope in now and what they can get out of now, and how good now can be. And then they'll get to a point where they'll say, you know what, I don't like the world anymore, my life's not that great anymore, or whatever. Some people do it because their health is gone, and they go, I look forward to a better life and more more hope in the future. Other people do it because they just don't like the world anymore. They go, I don't have hope for what I see. I'm going to now start hoping in something later. But it doesn't have to do in how great the reward was. It has to do in the state of the things that we're currently living in right now. One of the hardest things for me is Christmas card season. And the reason is because 
if I was going to have like an idol, well, you know, if I was going to have an idol, you know, if I was going to have an idol, then that picture of a family on a card that says blessed about how great this year is and has been, that would be it. That's the thing that I want. I want to have that picture. I want people to get mine in the mail and look at it and go, look at that. Look at, look at those people. Look at their life. Oh, there's a letter. Oh, there's a letter. You know, multiple pages maybe. Oh, look at all these things that they did this year. They're so great. What a great year. What a great life. Things are great now. It's one of the hardest things for us when many of us are honest. We need to be a people who live with a sense of anticipation for something. We need to keep our eye on the ball. This is like a person in the end zone waiting for a touchdown pass that is pretty much assured. It is almost there. They can see it. It's about to land. They're about to catch it. And in doing so, they will win. And if at the last moment, right then, that person goes, huh, look at this. Look at where I am, you know? So maybe some just reflection, you know? I mean, to think. To think of, of how I got here with all these fans and... I'm in, the, I'm in the end zone. This is crazy. This is, this is happening right now, right? I just can't really believe it. Boom goes the ball, right? We have to be a people who say, I anticipate this thing, and because of that, I'm not going to take my eyes off of this thing. And we think that we can do that. We think that we can take our eyes off of it and still, oh, yeah, no, it'll be fine. I'll get it all. I'm there. I'm focused. I'm paying attention. I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to focus on some other stuff right now. A people who live in anticipation because we get to be the people who have hope and other people don't get to be that people. And we want them to have hope too. But let's recognize how unique this is and how important this is. That, 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 that we get to be grateful, not that we're sentient beings and that we're thinking animals and that we live on a pale blue dot in the middle of a universe. We get to be thankful and grateful that we have hope in eternity. This, the new covenant, brings us. We can do good. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another for good works and for love. We get to do good. We got to stir each other up. Oh, we're good at this part, right? Yeah, we can, we can stir it up. We can stir each other up for sure. We could get each other rallied around and riled up and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff, right? But is it to do good? Is it for love? Well, maybe not all the time. You see, this is huge because... Um, in the new covenant, it's not just about what you don't do anymore. It's not just about being a group of people who abstain from things, which is how a lot of people think it is for people to follow Jesus, that you're the group of people that follow the rules. You're the group of people that don't do the bad things. And what do we get together for? Let's get together to avoid doing bad. Let's get together to abstain from bad. Let's get together to, to cut out all the bad stuff, say sorry for all the bad stuff, and then we'll be a great group of people. And what the authors in the New Testament are saying is they're saying, if you're in this new covenant, then the church is a group of people who are stirring each other up. You don't let the water settle. You don't let it just simmer down. You don't let it just be the way it is. You keep it moving and you stir up all the people constantly and say, we're going to do good. Because we have freedom in Christ. We don't have to obsess over and focus on sin all the time. We get to actually experience good. 
We get to love. And we get to be characterized by the things that we do that happen in our lives that are good things, that are things that involve love. We get to be a place that is constantly trying to ask each other, how can we do more good? How can we love? Why? Because we're in the new covenant. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The last thing, and I'm a little biased, but I think this one's important. Do not give up meeting together. Because of this new covenant, we come together. Why would people give up meeting together under the new covenant? Because they'd go, we don't got to kill the animals anymore. They don't have to put on the clothes anymore. They don't have to do all this stuff. They don't need the tabernacle anymore. It sounds like that's all, you know, metaphor, whatever now. So, so just see ya. See ya in heaven, everybody. I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to go do some good myself, right? No, don't give up meeting together as some have gotten in the habit of doing. Why would they get in the habit of not meeting together? Because they don't see the need for it anymore. They think now with the new covenant, now with Jesus, it's all about me and Jesus, right? Okay, fine, me and Jesus. I'll go away, I'll do my thing with Jesus, it'll be so good, don't need other people. Because of this, we come together often. This giving up meeting together thing, it wasn't talking about hundreds of people like the size of a church today. It was talking about like a small group of people because these were small house churches. Don't give up being in community together with each other. Keep being in community as a result of the new covenant. Biblical community that gives life where people know you and you know them, where they challenge you and they love you and you stir things up. Don't give up doing that. Keep coming together. That's one of the things that we get to do because of the new covenant. I think it's so awesome that we get to have communion on the week that we talk about this because the reason that we do communion is to remember. That's why. Jesus says, I want you to take communion and I want you to take it so that you remember me. And not just me, but that you remember what I've done and what that's accomplished and what it means for you. And so we take it as often as we can without taking it for granted, without it becoming rote, And we do it because it is so hard for us to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus. The priest is vital. It's essential. We need him. And our tendency is going to be to go to all these other things other than Jesus. It's going to be about so many other things but Jesus. And we are called again and again to keep him at the center. And so we're going to sing and we're going to pass out the elements and then we'll come back up and we'll take it together. I mean, you could take it on your own if you want, but you could take it with us together. And as we're doing that, I want you to reflect upon like this freedom that we have, this hope that we have, and that this is about Jesus. And if you're a person who doesn't like people and doesn't like relationships, then I have really bad news for you. Your whole soul and salvation are tied up in a relationship with a person. And this is ultimately about a relationship with a person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that you are not just the God of the universe who created everything, but that you're a good God. That when we look at the sacrifices that people have made to gods that they've worshipped and served, we recognize that... um, Nowhere in the order of, well, Lord, it is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly good that you love us as much as you do. That we know that regardless of what's going on in our life, regardless of how good or bad things are, that you love us. That we can know that. 
Lord, we thank you for your son, for what he's done. And we pray that as we take communion, as we reflect on it, Lord, that you would draw our mind back to hope. That we would approach you, not with guilt and shame and fear and hesitation, but that we would approach you knowing that when you look at us, you see your son and you're so pleased. Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, we recognize that the reason your word tells us not to give up meeting together is because it's hard for us to believe these things. Not because they're untrue, but because of how much our nature fights against them. God, to have hope seems hard. To draw near to you with confidence and assurance, knowing that you're good and that you love us is hard. It's our tendency to want to run from you, to want to be on our own. Um, Father, uh, keeping your son Jesus the main thing in our lives is hard. Keeping our eye on the ball is hard, Lord. Doing good and loving are hard things, Father. And so we know that you encourage us to come together, and our prayer, God, is that we would do that, that, that we would make it a priority to be here like this, to gather so that we can encourage one another and stir up amongst each other, Lord, the desire to do good for you, to hope in you, the reminder of who you are because the course of our week often leads to seem, seems to lead us to forget that, Lord. You're such a good God and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.